This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, we head to Central America, to Honduras, to discuss the problem of human rights in the lower Aguan River Valley, the Bajo Aguan, and to Costa Rica, to sort through the fallout from presidential politics there. But first, Megan Eckhamel is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. States admits its involvement in creating a Twitter-like service for Cubans. White House Press Secretary Jay Carney talks about why the U.S. government kept the program secret until it was exposed by the Associated Press. The program referred to by the Associated Press was a development program run by the United States Agency for International Development. Suggestions that this was a covert program are wrong. Congress funds democracy programming for Cuba to help empower Cubans to access more information and to strengthen civil society. In implementing programs in non-permissive environments, of course the government has taken steps to be discreet. High-speed communication in Cuba is difficult to come by since Internet access is limited and expensive. Citizens were allowed to have cell phones for the first time in 2008. Cuban officials apparently never realized the U.S. had set up the texting service because a series of shell companies based in Spain and elsewhere were listed as owners of the service. Nobel Prize-winning author Mario Vargas Llosa of Peru plans to travel to Venezuela and show his support for opposition groups, the groups that oppose President Nicolás Maduro, Vargas Llosa will attend a conference put on by CEDICE, an opposition think tank. The author is known for his strong political views against political oppression, particularly in Cuba and China. Leopoldo López, an outspoken critic of the Venezuelan government, turned himself into authorities in February. Now they are denying him bail. He was arrested on charges of inciting violence fueling the protests that have been raging in the streets of Venezuela for almost two months. President Nicolás Maduro claims the opposition has turned down his invitations to talk about what can be done about the protests. Brazilian police and military forces raided a dangerous Rio de Janeiro favela, or slum, called Mare. More than 1,000 police officers, backed by the military, were part of the raid. They occupied the area in less than 15 minutes and seized a large amount of drugs and weapons. The raid is part of a pacification program that began in 2008. Its aim is to weed out gangs and make the city safer for the 2016 Olympics. But for now, its efforts are focused on safety for this year's World Cup to be held in Brazil this summer. Murder numbers have been rising recently in El Salvador. In 2012, the powerful street gangs MS-13 and Barrio 18 signed a truce that cut homicide statistics in half. However, the numbers are so high now, 281 murders in March, that the Catholic Church considers the truce a failure. 
The numbers are still low by Salvadoran standards. Before the truce was signed, the highest monthly record was 413 murders. The Catholic Church was a mediator in the truce, but still encourages the new president-elect, Salvador Sanchez Seren, to pursue a more transparent avenue to quell the violence. A powerful 8.2 earthquake shook the earth off the coast of Chile. It was strong enough that the Bolivian capital felt some movement. Sucre, Bolivia's capital, is 300 miles away from the quake's epicenter. The quake triggered a small tsunami six feet high. Five people are confirmed dead. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Eckhamel. Thanks, Megan. The Honduran government recently created a new legal task force that will investigate killings in the Aguan River Valley, also called the Bajo Aguan. Attorney General Oscar Chinchilla says the new unit will begin by investigating 147 homicides. Honduran officials say many of the deaths are linked to a land conflict in the region in the northern part of the country, a conflict that has dragged on for at least five years. Latin Pulse's Rachel Bay explores the origins of this conflict and the prospects for ending the violence. The ongoing dispute over farmland in the Bajo Aguan has caused more than 100 deaths, by some counts nearly 150, since the conflict began sometime in the early 2000s. But Honduran authorities have failed to convict a single person in any of these deaths. Human Rights Watch's Nick Steinberg recently co-authored a report on the conflict. He warns that failing to investigate and prosecute the crimes has dire consequences. You know, if you commit a, a crime, serious crime in Honduras, you can basically be sure that no one is going to uh, investigate it and the people responsible aren't going to be held accountable. The problem with that is that if there's no cost for committing crimes and people have an incentive or they have something to benefit by threatening other people or attacking them or even killing them, then, then what you've done is created an environment in which more crime is likely to occur. The conflict stems from a 1992 change to Honduran law that allowed large tracts of land that had been owned collectively by groups of poor farmers, known as campesinos, to be sold to large industrial farms and agribusinesses. Annie Bird, the co-director of the human rights group called Rights Action, has studied the region extensively. She contends that after the laws were changed, agribusinesses relied on violence, intimidation, and fraud to force campesinos to sell their land. 34 farms which had been planted with African palm were sold to agribusinesses. 28 of those were challenged soon after by the farmers, uh, claiming that the sales were illegal due to the conditions under which they were forced to sell. When they were unable to reclaim their land in the courts, groups of campesinos forcefully retook possession of the farms. Byrd explains that these efforts were successful thanks in large part to the lack of security guards protecting the land. But in October 2009, the agribusiness leaders recruited paramilitary forces from Colombia to act as security and keep campesinos off the land. A widespread militarization of the region, mostly through security forces, um, but also with uh, a series of military occupations began, and violent and illegal evictions of the campesinos began to occur, which led to a few months of pretty acute conflict, but then a negotiation process began. Throughout the negotiation process, 
Death Squad actions were uh, focused against the campesinos as a means of pressuring them to accept conditions in the negotiations. The National Human Rights Commissioner of Honduras says 92 people were killed as a result of this dispute between 2009 and 2012. Guan is one of the most violent regions in a country that is known to have the highest homicide rate in the world. A big part of why there's so much violence there is there's been a total absence on the part of the government in one, providing basic security for the people who live there, and two, when, when there are acts of violence, actually investigating them and bringing to justice the people responsible. Steinberg says he was surprised that the Honduran prosecutors, police, and military officials he interviewed acknowledged and even lamented the lack of investigations. But prosecutors told him the situation is beyond their control. They said they had huge caseloads. They said that they operate in in an environment where they face a great deal of risk for their work. They said uh, that they didn't have cooperation from people who could possibly be witnesses in cases. But our finding in our report was that even taking into account that many of those obstacles exist and, and may well be real, there's no way to explain the lack of basic steps According to Human Rights Watch, police don't rush to crime scenes to gather evidence following a crime. They don't interview witnesses. They don't search the last known location for someone who has gone missing. There's no way to explain the lack of those basic steps other than to say there was actually a lack of political will and there was a lack of a commitment to really find out what had happened in these cases. Despite the lack of investigations, Honduran officials have persisted in blaming illegal armed groups, organized crime from neighboring countries, or even campesino organizations for the violence. In none of the 29 cases we investigated, in none of the nearly 100 cases overall of homicides in the region, has anyone been convicted in these cases? The government was was very comfortable placing the blame on, you know, one side or the other, which, you know, raises serious questions about whether what their priority was, was either was fitting this into, you know, a, a framework or a uh, a narrative that they had of what was happening in this this region rather than doing what their job was, which was actually figuring out who was responsible. In fact, Human Rights Watch's evidence suggests the government is behind much of the violence. This may in part be the result of efforts by former President Porfirio Lobo Sosa, who sent the military and the national police into the region to stop the violence. Steinberg says this tactic only made matters worse. In one case in the report, a, a minor who was the son of a a leader of a campesino group in the region, was arbitrarily detained in his house. He was beaten. He was doused in gasoline. Uh, Security forces threatened that they were going to light him on fire. They said they were going to kill him. He was held uh, incommunicado in detention for uh, an entire night. His family had no idea where he was. That boy was 16 years old. The largest palm-producing firm in the Bajo Aguan is the Teguchigalpa-based Denant Corporation, which owns palm-producing facilities across the country. And it's owned by uh, Miguel Facuse, who's renowned in Honduras to be the, the wealthiest person in Honduras and the largest landowner in Central America. In April 2009, the World Bank's lending arm, the International Finance Corporation, or IFC, agreed to loan Denant $30 million toward a $75 million project. 
The World Bank expected the loan to help Dinant increase production and expand its distribution network, which the IFC expected would create local jobs. In November 2009, Dinant received the first half of the loan, $15 million. But a year after that first disbursement, the president of the World Bank received a letter from Byrd's group, Rights Action, complaining of Dinant's possible involvement in the region's violence. Dinant employs a private security force called Orion, uh, which, is report, which, according to reports in the region, is owned by an active duty military officer that serves on the military base located in the middle of, in, in, that, in the same region where the, uh, the, the conflict exists. Rights Action claimed that this security force killed five farmers while attempting to evict them from a plantation. The IFC's internal watchdog investigated the matter. The audit report, released this past January, found that the World Bank's IFC had not done enough to monitor the situation in the Bajo Aguan. The audit did not investigate Rights Action's claims that Dinant was complicit in the violence. Dinant's spokesman, Roger Pineda, said he would not be available to comment in time for this report. However, he sent a few written statements, like this one, which will be read by one of our announcers, disagreeing with the report's findings and the allegations that Dinant is behind any of the violence. Dinant strongly contests the accusations brought against the company, its owners, and employees surrounding the violence in the Bajo Aguan region. It is a terrible fact that 17 Dinant employees have been killed, almost 30 have been injured during forced entries to our properties, and then five remain missing. Pineda said that to further protect against future violence, Dinant has removed all firearms from security guards at two plantation sites as part of a pilot program. A representative of the World Bank's IFC also declined to comment for this report. An IFC spokeswoman issued this written statement, read by another Latin Pulse announcer. We are working directly with Dinant to ensure that they adopt proper security measures that meet international standards and protect human rights. Furthermore, we urge the government of Honduras and Dinant to ensure that crimes highlighted in the audit are investigated and that remedies are available where wrongdoing is found. The spokeswoman also attributed a rise in the region's violence to the 2009 coup that ousted President Manuel Zelaya. She said the IFC could not have foreseen that turn of events. Experts say the audit of the IFC loan may have contributed to the Honduran government's decision to create the new investigative unit a few weeks ago. The unit is slated to include four public prosecutors and 20 investigative police. Pineda, the Denant spokesman, praised the new unit. But Alexander Maine, a policy analyst at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, doubts the team will have much impact. The Honduran government has a long history of kind of window dressing now, where they've kind of created nice task forces, nice institutions, um, the Police Reform Commission and so on where um, whether or not those organisms have done good work, uh, basically the Honduran authorities haven't done anything to improve the situation. Maine says increased pressure from the international community could help keep the investigations on track. But Maine is also not optimistic about an international actor intervening unless violence in the region gets worse. And Steinberg says that the steps already being taken don't go far enough. You know, this unit, its mandate is only for homicides that have been committed in the region. And that, while it's, a, you know, a good mandate, does not include alleged human rights abuses committed by security forces, uh, government security forces, such as cases of excessive use of force, 
torture cases and, and others. Steinberg advocates for the broadening of the investigator's mission. He says he also would like to see President Juan Orlando Hernandez offer a firm statement of commitment to solving these crimes. For Latin Pulse, I'm Rachel Bay. Coming up, Costa Ricans head to the polls this weekend with only one choice for president. We'll sort out the issues facing the next Costa Rican president in a moment. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Technically, there's a presidential election in Costa Rica this weekend, but the mayor of San Jose, Johnny Araya, the presidential nominee for the ruling National Liberation Party, the PLN, conceded the race almost a month ago. At the time, he was trailing in the polls by more than 40 points. Araya remains on the ballot. And this week, allegations arose that he violated Costa Rican election law by taking a contribution from a private company, including tickets and a free flight to a World Cup qualifying match in neighboring Panama. All this clears the way for Luis Guillermo Solis of the Citizens Action Party to win what amounts to a confirmation vote for president this weekend. We asked Professor Siska Raventos of the Universidad de Costa Rica, the University of Costa Rica, to help us sort out the issues and the politics. She joined us via Skype from San Jose, Costa Rica. Araya was able to win as long as the opposition to Liberación was divided. Now that the opposition is unites around one candidate, it's highly unlikely that he can win. So likely we're going to see Luis Guillermo Solis of the Citizens Action Party as the new president of Costa Rica. And the fact that he represents not one of the two main major parties, um, this is a real change and breakthrough in Costa Rica, is it not? Oh, it definitely is. Uh, the The bipartisan system has shown signs of crisis since 1998. Since 2002, we have uh, emerging parties, the main of, of, of which is this Partido Acción Ciudadana, which Luis Guillermo Solís is the candidate for. And despite the fact they've been around for three elections now, uh, they... They, they always, they, they start to fall in place of the opposition, but never had a real chance for government. And now that, that the entire opposition to Liberación would be uniting against uh, Liberación in this run-up election, he has a chance for the first time. The PLN, the official party, despite the fact that they will possibly lose the presidency, has the largest minority in Congress which is 80 de- 18 deputies out of 57, while ESPAC, which will possibly win the election, only has 13. So that, that creates a difficult situation for him as far as how to build coalitions in Congress. So he, he will have to um, deal with a divided Congress and, and get through his program by cutting deals with other parties, is what you're saying, Yes. Exactly, and there are two minority parties 
one to his left and one to his right that are the plausible candidates to cut deals. However, this would be a deal in three for him to win the direction of Congress. I mean, he cannot just uh, negotiate with one party and get the majority. He would have to go to two. His, so, so it's difficult. His party, the Citizens Action Party, is uh, regarded as a leftist party or a center-left party. Um, so do you see his philosophy having to go farther to the left, to the right, to moderate? How do you see that would work? That's the part that I think is difficult because if he goes to the left, he can find the support of Frente Amplio, who has nine deputies. However, Frente Amplio and PAC together are unable to achieve the 29 uh, deputies majority. So he also has to go to his right, to the Partido Unia Social Cristiana, to try to find support there. So, so I, I think that the only way um, he can achieve uh, a majority is by cutting different deals with each. The very top of the list for Mr. Solis is corruption. And his party's whole idea is an anti-corruption party. Um, how much corruption does he have to really deal with in Costa Rica, which is regarded as one of the better countries in Latin America when it comes to corruption? I think he has to deal with a lot. Um, even if we're regarded as one of the better countries, I think that corruption has become very widespread in institutions. It isn't only like the leadership of institutions where there is corruption, but you find it across the board. And um, what he will be able to designate are the heads of these institutions. Uh, most of the personnel will stay the same. And after eight years of liberación, possibly uh, most of the intermediate leadership inside the institutions will be is liberacionista or mainly liberacionista. The last years, there have been enormous corruption scandals in, in Costa Rica. Is this possible for him to do this without really dealing with the Congress as, as a chief executive, as someone with executive powers and a, appointment powers? Is he able to clean this up without having to negotiate politically? Well, his challenge, his challenge politically in the case of corruption is not predominantly with Congress, but rather inside the institutions. I mean, he would have to negotiate with the personnel of the institutions, with the unions, with the intermediate leadership of the institutions, and try to cut deals that would allow the institutions to operate uh, better than they have done in the recent past. And so, so, this so, so Congress is not Congress is not the main problem in the case of corruption, from my point of view. It's more achieving um, some form of governance inside the institutions. Inside public institutions. And, and Mr. Solis um, is a diplomat, is an academic, but, but not someone who is a regular politician in, in the Costa Rican sphere. And so, um, in your opinion, does he have the skills to be able to do all of this negotiation, both with the bureaucracy and also with Congress? I think that he might. Have, I think that, that his diplomatic skills and his pragmatism, and, and, and in general, his negotiating skills. He's a very uh, 
calm, serene, listening person. So I think that that personally he has very good skills to undertake this task. Um, problem is that these things don't always depend on personal capacity. It, it much can be much can happen because of social and political forces, and and negotiating is not everything. I mean. I think I think that that I would trust his his personal skills to a very large extent, but there might be like like situations in which you you can't get by with negotiate with diplomacy listening. So let me also ask about some of the other items on his list of improvements that he wanted to see that he ran on um, as part of his platform, and one was fixing unemployment in Costa Rica, that the unemployment rate is between 18 and 19 percent, which by U.S. standards sounds very high, um, but by Latin American standards may not be so high. Is that something that is that is easily fixed given Costa Rica's history or not? Uh, No, I don't think so. I don't think it is easy to fix. The main employers are small and medium businesses. Uh, These are are very hurt by the, the enormous amount of free trade agreements that Costa Rica has and that, that give predominance to transnational corporations. So we've listed unemployment and corruption, and one of the other issues during this past electoral period was uh, crumbling infrastructure in Costa Rica. All three of those items, have they really contributed to a, a sense in the electorate that they're not happy with politicians, and this is why we have someone like Mr. Solis taking over as as likely to take over as president, um, who is not a career politician. Well, I wouldn't say he's not a career politician. I mean, he has been related to politics uh, his entire life. Uh, he was in he since a very young man. He was in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, in the Arias Peace Plan. He was Secretary of Liberación Nacional at a point. So I wouldn't say that he isn't a career politician, although he is not a professional politician because he works more as a professor. But but it is a person that has been in politics his entire life. The third point, the one that you just raised, the one of infrastructure, might give him more leverage. I mean, there seem to be funds that have not been uh, spent and funds that have been paralyzed by different bureaucratic procedures. And there he might have a chance to start getting some of the infrastructure working. He might be able to get some programs to, to work. So that might be a chance for him. He promised in the first round of the campaign to uh, not pass new taxes in the first two years. This is not necessarily feasible since we'll have a fiscal deficit of a, of 7% over GDP this year. PLN, PLN could try to push back into a regressive um, new taxes. I mean, that, that, that we do get taxes because even business is very worried about the amount of the fiscal deficit, how it can hurt the macro, macroeconomic situation and business. But my sense is that they would possibly be interested in a, in some kind of a tax that just raises rent, revenue, without redefining who pays the tax. So I think I think that 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 PLN will try to exploit 
their 18 uh, members of parliament as as strongly as they can to have some leverage over what uh, Solis does and to try to to corner him into what they want him to do. So so already different sectors are pressuring to 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 pass new taxes and the question is not whether we'll get new taxes. They they will definitely be needed. These are like like the four main points uh the fiscal deficit and taxes, infrastructure, corruption, and employment. Yeah, I would say that those are the main the main issues. Thank you so much, Professor Cisco Raventos of the Universidad de Costa Rica, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Musica Q. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Megan Eckhamel, reporter Rachel Bay, production assistant Ray Daniel, and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music by Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2014, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs> <laughs>